Hi, Chris. How are you? Good evening, Rod. Yes, all is well. We're back in the damp shed. Well, I say damp shed. It's damp outside. Thankfully, the shed's dry. Has it been raining much there today? Loads. It's awful. It's very squelchy outdoors. <laughs> we had a lot of rain this morning, but it's actually been quite a nice evening. The clouds went. You could see the stars beautifully. It was lovely. Well, it sounds much better in Wales than in Gloucestershire, I must say. Well, I will report back. We're going to have a shorter show today just because I'm I'm off traveling again. I'm getting to go to Italy tomorrow in the very early hours of the morning. So but let's do a, a short show. You you definitely get to travel to much better locations than me. I get to go to London, which I, and I generally love London. I love the big city, but you're definitely more glamorous than I am. I don't know about glamorous. It's just uh, yet another conference center in another part of the world is all. How much of it you see between the airport and generally being decanted at night, I'm not sure about. But yeah, it's a bit of a thing. But if you're going to go to a conference, Milan has got to be the place to go, surely. It, yeah, I can't really complain that much. It's a little bit outside of Milan. It's only one of the northern Italian lakes, so, you know, it is what it is. Did you just say lake? Well, it's Lake Maggiore. It's on the banks of Lake... I probably said that wrong. So if we have any Italian listeners, please get in touch and tell me if I've pronounced that incorrectly. But uh, that's where I'm headed. I'm headed for Beveno. It, well, just the names sound stunning. And the fact there's a lake and it's in Italy, I'm jealous. Yeah, fair enough. I won't. I won't talk about my terrible life so far. So, I, yeah, if I'm going to be busy, that's not a terrible reason to be busy, is it? I'll send you a picture from the Microsoft building on Wednesday. I'm in a conference centre in Paddington. <laughs> I thought Microsoft were in Reading. The headquarters, but they've got a, a couple of floors in Paddington as well. Right. They, they always have a presence in London, I think, because obviously it's easier for people to come to and and all of that piece than, than Reading out in the sticks. Fair enough. That's good. It's, it's top information. I did not know that. Anyway, should we kick off the show? Episode 43 for the 14th of November, 2022. Yeah, let's do it. So straight off into follow-up. So I think this one's with me. So on Friday, the company I work for may or may not have purchased an iPad Pro M2 and it was going spare. So I thought I'd try it out and I had a go on it and I thought I'd compare it to my M1 iPad Pro. Not a lot to report. It was very disappointing. You could literally not tell them apart. My M11 does have 16 gig of RAM, but this M21, because it's a lower storage one, only had 8 gig of RAM, and I couldn't tell them apart. I was trying stage manager earlier, and the M21 still just bombed out at every opportunity. So I abandoned it and went back to my M1, and it's not worth the upgrade for me. And I don't think it is really for anybody with an M1 iPad. That is quite interesting what you say about the RAM, though. If you didn't notice any difference between yours with more RAM and that with half the RAM, does that speak to the chip being better being able to cope with that or is it just ipads are pretty good at this stuff anyway i think the ipad just manages it all with the virtual memory it's which is something it didn't have years ago and i do remember i upgraded years ago for the ram because it meant flipping between apps was a lot better but i think the way stage manager works it's a lot better and so it's, so it's less of a deal for me I, possibly if you're an artist we are doing video editing which i am not the RAM's more important. But no, the RAM was not a deal breaker at all. And the performance, it's hard to tell the performance. So it just didn't really seem to do much for me. And because there's no visual differences in the iPad, you literally can't, for me, you can tell them apart. So I will be returning the iPad because I think I'd rather have my terabyte of storage and the RAM at this point. That's quite interesting. I was speaking to one of the other researchers at work today, actually, and he's got an M2 Mac- MacBook Air in midnight of course because no other are available and he's got 24 gigs of ram with that and he had an m1 macbook here sorry macbook pro at that point and absolutely notices the difference between the 24 gigs on his m uh, his m2 uh, m2 the, to the m1 
he's a geographer. They do lots of stuff with large data sets that's sort of very memory intensive when you're sort of doing your analysis on them. And is, was just blown away by the performance on it, even on a sort of very highly compute intensive data set. So I was really impressed with that, actually. To stay on a, to go from a MacBook Pro to a MacBook Air, yes, with more RAM, but for what he does, the, there's a massive difference. So I just thought that's interesting feedback. If you're worried about it not having 32 gigs of RAM or more, you can get absolutely get a huge amount of work done with one of them. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think the way the Mac handles RAM is probably different and it possibly is more noticeable, but for the kind of work I do, it did not make a big difference at all. I only used it for one day, really. After the day, I was like, it's not worth setting up another new iPad and going through the rigmarole of all of that. And I would rather have the storage at this point, I think. Fair enough. No, that's good feedback. What else have we got in follow-up? Oh, just to briefly mention Freeform. I can't remember if I mentioned this last week, but I think the beta came out since then. It now syncs over iCloud. So I had to turn it on and back off on both iPads, and now it syncs. And I'm trying to use Freeform a bit more just to try it out with my iPad mini, but using my iPad mini, I've definitely noticed the lack of promotion when you use the pencil. It's just not as nice. Why can't they do an iPad Pro mini? That's what we need. Yeah, it's almost certainly down to money, isn't it? And maybe it will come at some point. It's it's interesting. I don't even really know what the app does, except it sort of being a continual note-taking thing. Does it perform like notes? Is it just like a big canvas you can continually draw on? Infinite canvas, syncs, meant to do loads of collaboration. You can insert photos into it and other media. I just wanted to try out because I used to do use GoodNotes quite a bit and I just wanted to try it out as a GoodNotes replacement. Whether it will replace my notebook is a second question. But equally, I'm not sure they would ever do an iPad mini pro or pro mini because the iPad mini costs so much money that I can't imagine doing a more expensive version would have any form of market share. I might try it. I think if I get it, we'll see if we can collaborate on our show notes between it for one show just to see how that goes because that might be an interesting experiment for it. It is nice and I like drawing with the red crayon. That, that seems to work for me. Fair enough. That's that's interesting. That maybe says something about your personality. We won't analyze that too much. I have a little bit of, this isn't follow-up. Well, it is follow-up, but it's left over from a couple of shows ago. I said I would try Taskmaster when I was abroad in Amsterdam. I have downloaded four episodes of Taskmaster to my iPad, and I will try it when I'm in Italy just to see if it actually works. So maybe you need to remember to send me a text at some point and go, have you tried Taskmaster yet? Even if I'm sat in an airport somewhere, you can you can let me know. I will try my best. Good. So I said it was going to be a short show this week, and I think it will be. There's actually not that much in the show, in the news, in the way of Apple, except one big story about their privacy things, which we're actually going to talk about in the main show rather than doing the news. So I say we just dive straight into the news and get on. Yeah, definitely. Let's do it. So first story, this is very appropriate considering we're talking so much about Elon Musk last week, is that Tesla has recalled 40,000 cars over a patch, so a software patch, that broke the power steering in the car. I think that's an incredible thing for a software patch to do. So it physically broke the steering, so it couldn't be repatched and fixed. So according to a recall report from the US NH, I can never say this, US NHTSB, which is their travel safety authority, Tesla believes 1% of the 40,000 cars have the bug, which is said to only affect Model S and Model X models manufactured between 2017 and 2020, which includes the year Model 21. Those vehicles, when updated to the firmware release of this particular one, 2022.36, got new calibration data for the electronic power assist systems. And this was rolled out on October the 11th and was intended to, intended to update this system to better detect unexpected steering assist torque, whatever that is, and ended up doing exactly the opposite. So that sounds pretty bad, really. That's quite a bug to ship. Now, you and I have both been developers, and I'm sure we've both shipped bugs, but that's not good. 
it's really not on what is, let's face it, both the Model S and the Model X are the most expensive cars Tesla make uh, and always have been. And the latest Model S, uh, which is including this, you know, up to uh, October 2021, uh, sorry, December 2020, which I think just covers the latest uh, year model. That's a very expensive automobile. I mean, I think they start at £90,000 for both models in the UK. Oh, a huge amount of money, I'm sure. But they are premium. Maybe Elon needs to send some of the Twitter guys back to Tesla to, to, to get back on with developing. Bonkers they can do that. How did it get through testing, though? Well, you just completely lose your power steering. I mean, driving a power-assisted power power steering assisted car without the pump is almost impossible. It weighs a huge amount. Yeah, no, no, agreed. I'm just sorry, just reading about all the article. It is bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's just another little story. Like you say, we talked last week about the engineers from Tesla going to help out Twitter. Like you say, you know, bring the Twitter engineers back. Maybe they can fix this kind of thing. But this is, I mean, to me, it shows the sort of caution you must show with these kinds of cars, which are software updatable. And mine has had, I don't know, it's almost countless software updates since I got my Model 3. All At least once a month, you get a significant update. And occasionally within those significant updates, they entirely change the user interface. They moved where the wipers were one time. You know, it used to be that appear on the bottom right of the screen and they don't, you could sort of always leave them there. And then it was gone. It was just a bare row of icons, more or less, at the bottom. And changing that kind of functionality in a car is just bonkers. Yeah, you kind of need to give a bit of heads up that look, this is going to move in a month's time or something. I don't know. It seems a bit bit bizarre. So mine's had a for update, my BMW. It took a long time to install because it downloads your phone and then goes, installs it onto the device, updates. And they did make some visual tweaks, but very minor. But mine's still largely activated via buttons. So like it's still got stalks to do everything on the steering wheel. The only thing they have got behind the screen is all the climate stuff, which annoys me. I just want some dials and buttons, but feels like that's a step too far but on the whole they've just made some slight visual tweaks which 90 percent of the time are better and they've made some tweaks to carplay which is good so where i get the maps in the driver's screen it shows me now the arrival time on the on the little map map in between my dials so they've actually made some slight quality of life improvements so i, I like the work they're doing on, on the bmw side they don't seem to be changing too much i mean to be fair to yeah, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like the kind of update you want that is where you're getting those quality of life improvements rather than sort of major system sort of changes. To be fair to Tesla, it's had a lot of updates and I haven't had that many problems. And in fact, you know, as you, as you read through this article, which will of course be linked in the show notes, there was another recall last September where they recalled more than a million vehicles because the windows could potentially trap limbs in them. And I've tried this on the odd power, power window, you know, electric windows car that I've had where you'll stick your elbow in it you know, or I've stuck my elbow in it just to see if it will stop. Because when I had young kids, I was a bit worried about them sticking their heads in it and putting their feet on the buttons or whatever to see if it would stop. And it will stop. It reaches a point and the window will actually go down on most cars if you do that. So that's another quite nasty bug. So you want them to update stuff like that. It's just, it's a bit of a worry when it's power steering. What's next? Is it brakes? You know, is it the, the powertrain gets limited to 1%? You, you do worry about that. And so the security of automakers releasing these kind of patches. And Polestar do the same thing. Polestar release major system upgrades to their cars in the same way that Tesla do. And it makes huge amounts of changes to the vehicles. Most auto manufacturers like BMW obviously have more minor updates that they're trying to patch, but Tesla's entirely software. It's like a, it's like your phone. You get a new iOS version, you get a new Tesla version every so often that changes everything, moves everything around. And most of the time it's adding stuff. I remember they added Disney Plus to the entertainment system, for example. 
occasionally they're obviously doing bug fixes and patches and a lot of the software i don't get to see because i don't pay for the full self-driving package which isn't really that useful in the uk anyway you know it, it's just it's it's interesting when they do this kind of stuff it's worth reporting on well two things just spring to mind a could you imagine being the developer going to your boss and going i think we need to bring back some cars because we might release something and b who signs this off though is it can tesla just sign off their own software or is there not an authority that needs to sign it off before it goes out because it's going out two cars it's a very good question you would have thought i mean you would have thought that the the various manufacturer i don't know i mean like the the nh the nhtsa i can't say that no matter how many times i read it you would have thought a certain level of that should be approved by them because that's the car sort of safety performance and all the rest of it. But, but maybe they say, we'll keep it at the standard. If something goes wrong, then they'll do the recalls. I mean, I, I don't know how it works for manufacturers now, to be honest. I presume that, that there is a certain level of safety that they're sort of able to get away with. And beyond that, they can just patch it and software. I mean, it's not like Boeing or Airbus when they're, you know, they've got the aircraft flying around that need to be signed off by CAA, FAA, you know, all, all those other agencies. But I guess you're right. There must be a certain amount of oversight from from safety bodies in, in these countries yeah or compliance or governance just something i, I don't know it's, it seems like they're running a little bit rogue if i'm really honest maybe maybe that's homework for us to go and find out whether you know is the, is the same level of software performance you know expected by the safety bodies for vehicles as it is for other things because you wouldn't it's not like a crash test where it's got to perform in a certain way and do a certain number of miles or something is it but it should be treated as that i think you and i would both agree that there should be a level of checking of software that it will perform as expected on this vehicle for this many times that they try it i don't know but could these software updates impact fuel consumption crash test because, you know, does, do they ever release something that changes, you know, the performance so that it might consume more battery power or, and therefore are they getting retest for it or same with crash in that, you know, are they making any changes to the algorithm that deploys the airbags or whatever it may be and the intelligence there? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things there, isn't there? I mean, Volkswagen absolutely put a defeat device in so they could get past the emissions controls, didn't they? I mean, the, the whole diesel gate scandal was based on that. And that was a, you know, a piece of hardware, soft, sorry, a piece of software on the cars that did that. So yeah, they're for emissions testing and things like that. That's obviously part of it. Yeah, it's it's a, a real sort of edge case here where you do it. And yeah, I mean, we don't know enough about it, I guess. It's 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 definitely an interesting thing because you think if you've got this level thing and it's been proven that other cars, I think it was a General Motors had that hack where people could just walk up and, and unlock your car, you know, or when you were driving past. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. Yes, I think that was Jim. Yeah, so, and, and, so, and the other thing that Tesla do is they offer a, a a performance upgrade if you're willing to pay another i forget what it is let's say ten thousand pounds they will unlock more acceleration for your car wow so that's the thing firmware you can update. do yeah firmware update to update, update the acceleration in your car so and i'm pretty sure with the early tesla model threes that you could have another firmware update that would unlock some speakers that were built around the car so you could have more multi-point multi, set, multi -point speakers operating around the vehicle so absolutely they can do these things as a software update Sounds like the BMW store all over again. Should we move on? Let's move on. We've talked about Tesla enough. Next two stories are about Amazon. And the, the, the first one I think is particularly interesting and impactful in light of what we were talking about with Siri last week, where you know they're dropping the hay from Siri. What does that affect? They'd be better spending the time doing other things. And one of the things we often cite as a success is Alexa. But this story is Amazon is subjecting Alexa to a performance review because it's expensive to develop. And Amazon, we'll talk about in our next story, amazingly are losing money and are having to cut staff and one of the things they're talking about looking at is the amazon alexa assistant that's going into microsoft because it's had an operating loss 
of exceeding $5 billion in recent years. $5 billion. On That's one, a big number. That is a very big number on one, one part of the company. And you think how, I think how pervasive Alexa is for things. I've probably set off people's Alexa devices. I mean, they were first to market, weren't they? You know, with an operate, a voice operated device that could play your music and could set alarms and could tell you a stupid joke and was fairly open open and, and, and scare quotes to the ability to install other integrations with. So for them to be losing that amount of money is just staggering, really. You know, I agree with you. And it has a good name, generally, I think. But I don't hear about people buying Echoes at, at all. Years ago, you'd get Black Friday all around. People, I'll pick up an Echo for 20 quid. I'm hearing about nobody buying any new of the Echo devices. Not really people doing much with smart speakers. I don't think. I think the smart speaker bubble's come and gone a little bit in that we've all tried it. Actually, it's quicker if I just push the buttons myself, but it's quite convenient that I can just play some music out of a speaker. I'll be honest, I largely use my HomePods in the house just to go, hey, play something I like. And that seems to work really well. And that's pretty much all I use them for. Or just for tunes. Uh, occasionally, I might go put a time on or add something to the shopping list. That's it. Yeah, you're not wrong. And if you think about the other sort of notable failures in this market, Apple has one. The original HomePod was unsupported very, very quickly thereafter. And you're left with the cheaper devices. Still supported. Still got software. But you can't get them fixed and the warranties and all of that's run out. And there seems to be a known problem with capacitors or something in them where they blow them. So, you know, there's a known hardware problem with the device that they're not particularly bothered about fixing. You can't buy a new one. You can only buy small ones from this point on. So, yeah, it is supported in software. But... From all reports, the hardware is not very long for this world anyway in the existing ones. Yeah, no, you're right there. And the small ones are very good. Well, they're good enough, yeah. And then on the other side of it, Google have released a couple of their home devices. I think it was called the Google Max or something, which was their sort of large boombox speaker. And that didn't stay in the market very long either because nobody was buying them. So I think you're onto something that there isn't really a market for that smart speaker. And the Alexa product line encompasses everything from the little ball things or the tower things as they used to be all the way up to, you know, the various ones with screens that they've got on countertops and things like that. So I think you're right. I think people have tried them. The ones that were likely to try them have tried them. And in many cases, you've still got the notepad in front of the screen, in front of the fridge to write your shopping list down on. You're not using those integrations. The jokes aren't all that funny. And it's not that hard to get music to come out of your speakers in some way, other shape, manner, or form. Most people, I suspect, they've got their Spotify playlist to put their phone down on the counter and they just leave that playing. I think you might be right. And obviously, phone speakers and tablet speakers have got a lot better. So I just, I'm just trying to recall when I've been around a friend's house and they've had, have they had any of these cylinders? I'm not really remembering it i think most people want a reasonable speaker to play some music out of but maybe sonos had the right idea and just kept stuck to their guns didn't they and they've actually come out the other end of the smart speaker war and basically people just want a reasonable speaker for a reasonable price and it's an occasional purchase it's not a growing segment i would say well and that's another thing if you have bought and are happy with your alexa speaker whatever for whatever model when you bought it and you bought it on sale on on amazon for 20 dollars or whatever it cost why would you change it you know, if it's good enough to make that tinny sound to play your Spotify or your Amazon Music playlist, it's probably still good enough now. It gets updated with the software anyway. So it's not an ongoing market that people are just going to continually upgrade to the next best. Completely agree. Yeah, so it's you're right. I think it may not be surprising that it's going. So that was our first story. Actually, before I finish that story, further down in the article, it's worth pointing out, on the other hand, the Amazon has announced blockbuster acquisitions for its robot vacuum maker, iRobot, so $1.7 billion, and its healthcare provider, One Medical, for $3.9 billion. I, th that mean interesting. So the robot vacuum, I don't think it's had its day yet. I think they're still 
some ways to go on that. I keep giving them a side eye, but they're not quite at a price point that I'm comfortable with. And I didn't even know they had a healthcare provider, if I'm honest. Doesn't surprise me. I'm not surprised. I mean, Amazon probably own a whole bunch of companies we've never heard of. Mm. Well, they own your uh, Eero, don't they? they? They make those too. Yeah. Oh, follow up. So a friend of mine, I gave him three Eros to try out because he had some dead spots in his house. His previous mesh network wasn't very good. He installed three Eros. He didn't want to like them because he's a super techie guy into security, wasn't keen they were linked to Amazon, installed the three Eros, loved them, and bought them off me immediately. Fair enough. So another convert, because they are such a good product. You can't do a lot with them. You know, there are limited like networking settings, but he just said they're so simple to use. Family love it because they can now get internet all across the house and so easy to deploy. Oh, fair enough. I mean, it's obviously a good product. I notice one of the networks, a Talk Talk, I think, are giving it an euro away with a subscription when you when you join their service now. I, I I haven't seen it, but I wouldn't be. They are so good, and they are plug and play. I think they're fantastic. I think it's quite good if you have got that sort of cachet with them. In the same way, Virgin Media were given away TiVo boxes rather than some nameless thing because TiVo was a non software brand. Although I think they're in the process of going out of business too. That if you if you attach something like this well regarded like that, it does actually give your service a boost. And Talk Talk haven't been the best regarded. They were the cheapest. Doesn't necessarily mean they were the best. I haven't personally used them, so I can't speak from personal experience. But I think that's if there is a, a lack of reliability in something as fundamental as a router, and you can work with someone like Euro to deploy something that is more reliable, well regarded, potentially get a bit of a deal with Amazon going on as well. It's not necessarily a bad business play. I think it's much better for companies like Talk Talk to partner with somebody like that rather than try and make their own system. Because BT, I'd hate to think how much BT invests in making all their own modems, routers that they've done for years. Now they've started doing their Halo scheme, which is similar. Actually, why don't you you just outsource that to the professionals and get proper kit? I think BT are a slightly different company because they always used to make this kind of stuff. You know, they have got a bit of a history of making telephony and internet-enabled devices because they were one of the first to be involved with it. Having said all that, I agree with you. There's a lot better stuff on the market now than there is. And to be fair, the Smart Hub 2 or whatever it is I've got that brings my fiber to the house has been rock solid. You know, I've got no complaints about the thing at all. It's, it, it hasn't missed a beat since we, put, we, we switched it on when we had it installed and we talked about that on this podcast. So I think it's fine, but you're right. I, I'm, I have a higher regard for my own Unify Ubiquiti equipment and you do for your Eero. Than, and they're the people that are good at this stuff. So you think they could save an awful lot of money in those divisions. Of course, that probably means layoffs in BT's case. That by, by outsourcing that or just buying it in from, from other people that make it. Yeah, no, agreed. And yeah, so it does mean layoffs, which probably, layoffs, which probably brings us into the our Amazon article. But yeah, so this is a story that it's about to break, it seems, from everything. And this is Amazon are reportedly planning to lay off about 10,000 employees starting this week. Now, that is a huge number of job losses. Yeah, I can't get my arms around that kind of number. What gets me here, though, is we've obviously had Twitter. We've now had Meta. And now we've had Amazon. Are these all planned or is everybody just knee-jerking and goes, oh, look, maybe everybody's right. Maybe we have got too many staff. It's a bit worrying because it's been an employee's market up until quite recently. And now it feels like the tables are turning and there are actually going to be an abundance of, of good employees out there looking for roles. So I wonder whether the market's turning. Yeah, it's, it almost feels a bit like the end of the the Web 2.0 bubble, doesn't it? You know, from the first time when everything started going belly up, you, you had this sort of contraction, and Amazon was one of the survivors of that. It was one of the, the, the companies that did very well out of it. And now we're coming to the end of what 
There's a story later on about the age of social media ending and those companies that provide backbone and these staff are from the corporate and technology roles. So what have we just been talking about is things like Alexa, is presumably things like AWS and the web services and things like that, that they're talking about getting rid of these, the, these members of staff. And maybe there just are more good people on the market so they can afford to be a bit more choosy. If Twitter have got a load of a load of people, Meta have got rid of a load of people, it, it, it could just be a time for employers. And then there's also the thought as I'm talking, that it's a reaction to COVID. You know, everybody did quite well working from home with COVID. Maybe they start coming back or not coming back into the buildings and they're going, well, what did these people actually do during COVID? And I'm sure they worked very hard. Certainly in Twitter's case, I'm convinced that they worked very hard. But some middle manager somewhere could look at his staff and go, well, they haven't been in the building for the last you know year and a half, two years, three years. They've only checked in this much code or whatever ridiculous metric they use to observe an employee's productivity. And they've just decided to cut them as well as People aren't spending as much as we've talked about on subscriptions and buying things from Amazon and, and maybe looking for their own internal clouds or shopping for their cl the cloud services elsewhere. So I think it's just becoming a perfect storm of things going wrong for these kinds of companies. I think you might be right. I think you probably nailed it. You know, the cost of living, interest rates, it's all piling on here in the UK, especially. Uh, and maybe everybody's just taking stock. So like you say maybe consumers are taking stock. And then obviously the companies that consumers would normally buy from go, whoa, we take stock too because everybody's taking stock and it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? That actually we then talk ourselves into a downturn. Yeah, absolutely. And you're quite right. I mean, if you go into the detail in the, in the CNBC article that's linked, you know, Meta announced it's laying off 13% of its staff. So, I mean, that's a huge part of the company. Amazon had 798,000 employees at 2019, but that was up to 1.6 million as December 31, 2021. I mean, that's that's all doubling their employee base effectively, isn't it? So as these things contract, that's not that surprising, I suppose, is it? No, it's not. And they're possibly carrying a few extra heads, but 10,000 is still a big number to let go. Yeah, you know, and it's, this isn't people in warehouses are talking about, which are the worst paid, worst treated staff. We know Amazon's sort of track record here. It, it's people in the technical jobs, which up to now have been sort of fairly safe. So it's definitely interesting times ahead. Yeah, this feels like more of the corporate roles from what I was reading and, and you know, the organisation that makes the machine work. Absolutely. And that sort of links nicely into our, our next news story, which is just, it's a thought piece from The Atlantic, actually, on the age of social media ending. And the whole thing it starts with what we've been talking about, that Facebook is in decline, Twitter is in chaos, Amazon is losing people, and it's laying off people. The ad businesses are in peril, and we've touched on that with Apple a little bit as well. You know, all of these things are starting to, you know, the, the, the bubble, which has been expanding and expanding, and these companies have been able to make money for a very long time on their ad spend and, you know, on the way that they've, the services that underpin a lot of the ad engines and the way this thing's become, you as the product as the rest of it, are building up. And you can see them starting to sort of teeter. It's very obvious with Twitter, and we talked about that a lot last week. People shift, they move on to Snapchat, they move on to TikTok, and they, all those things are a continual sort of cycle and churn of users. I just thought this was a very interesting article for where do we go next and you know what does it mean for all those people that have come to depend on those services, really? Yeah, I think it is interesting. And I think Facebook's got its place. I think it's found its, its place. LinkedIn's still going, obviously. Twitter's obviously hitting the rocks. TikTok's kind of come, yeah, it hasn't permeated for me. I don't know about you, like, I've, I've got no desire to go on it, if that makes sense. We're too old. Well, there, there is that. But what I think is interesting is we were just talking about smart speakers and Sonos just carried on doing its thing. LinkedIn's kind of been like that. It's just carried on doing its thing in the background. 
and hasn't really got caught up in trying to do too much of the social piece. It's always kind of been the work platform. And occasionally you get articles on there and people will post and say, I know LinkedIn's not normally the place to post this kind that, that kind of article. But it's kind of just carried on in the background doing its thing. And actually it'll probably come out of this still doing its thing. Whereas I think people are questioning Twitter. I myself did sign up for a web service today to do RSS because I thought, actually, do you know what? I'm going to try something else because I largely just use Twitter for RSS feeds and well, not RSS feeds, but to find out what's going on on websites and news and, and things. So I thought, well, maybe I could do that in a different way. So I wonder whether, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe people are questioning it a bit more. Oh, I think they probably are. And it's had a lot of attention recently, and and most recently, I think Twitter was notorious for the the Trump years and what you'd say on there, and and how how that sort of shift off center, whichever way your politics lie, you know, whatever side you're on of that particular battle, you felt it was unfair to you, and I think that's true of most social media platforms. Is you get algorithmed into a particular bucket that's reported on in some either the mainstream press or a different sort of leaning organization. And, and the balance just feels off kilter no matter where you are with it. And combined with that is the underlying toxicity of it all. It's probably more stressful for you to be part of most of these social networks, actually. We all, the doom scrolling is definitely a thing that it's kind of reinforcing it. That and, I, and users will move on. And social networking has always been slightly impermanent in the sense that we used to have MySpace. We used to have was it Boingo. I forget the name of the other one. No, there, there was a whole there was a whole sequence of them that that got subsumed by Facebook. And Facebook, sorry, Meta, have been very good at buying other companies that are coming along to try and sort of kick the can down the road a little bit with Instagram and and others. But there's only so far you can kick that can. You're fundamentally doing the same thing. The users will embrace something else. And I think that's why TikTok and Snapchat for the next generation might be that. But maybe people are just stopping using social media at all. And like you, are returning to RSS, returning to emails, and just having those sort of one-time things. Things like LinkedIn that does one thing really well. You know where you're getting when you go there and that's it. You, other than that, you've got your circle of friends and you, and you message them, you know? Yeah, I agree. And look, I've never done social media really, so... I it's probably not me that's left social media. I'd never really got on board with it. I wonder whether Meta have struggled though to keep up with the trends where they've had their tracking restricted over the years and they, they're, they're, it's harder for them to see what others are doing with their devices and sites. I wonder whether that's impeded some of their acquisitions because they haven't seen trends emerging. Whereas when they bought WhatsApp and I think Instagram, it was reported that they could see the trends of where people were going and spending their time. And therefore, they knew they were the right things to buy. And maybe that's why we haven't seen acquisitions from Meta more recently of this sort of scale, because they haven't got the analytics to back up the, the purchase, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it kind of does make sense. They can't skate to where the puck is going anymore if they don't know what, what's changing over time. Yeah, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? But also... The people that run these companies and thinking of somebody like Zuckerberg isn't in touch with in the way he used to be. When he started Facebook, my Facebook, was it the Facebook, sorry, the Facebook, he was a university student and launching it in university campuses, he obviously was plugged into what people of his age were expecting. As, as he's aged out and he's now one of the more middle-aged people that make use of it, as is most of Facebook's audience, the people that come before him have got no interest in doing it that way. They want to do it their way. And that's probably endemic of all the social networks. It's probably what happened to MySpace is that something that was more zeitgeisty for that point came along. But there's always something in the underground that the, the next generation are using. You know, and that's been true of all media. If we've gone from, you know, stone tablets to newspapers to, you know, to, to, to the web, to books, to print, you know, as the technology's improved and things have become along, then one generation's left behind still reading newspapers. 
I never pick up a newspaper. I, I subscribe to an app. I subscribe to the Guardian app or whatever it is that I want to read. So that sort of churn for people is captured by what you said a minute ago, is that they're unable to sort of progress to the next thing because they're only focused on the thing that they're doing. Yeah, it's, it's really healthy, isn't it, to stop sometimes and look outside the bubble, your comfort zone, your business, whatever it may be, and see what's going on. I did actually go on Meta.com earlier. I can't remember why. I thought I was just going to have a look, see what's what on Meta.com, not Facebook. And I went to about, I went to the leadership team, and I forgot that Nick Clegg is still there, and he's like the head of comms or PR or something like that. Under his profile, it just lists his Twitter account. He doesn't have a Facebook account on there, which surely every exec, on at meta slash facebook must have a facebook account that they're sharing publicly you'd have thought so i found that really interesting that he had a twitter account listed as the way to follow him which i thought wouldn't be the done thing if you're working for that company and that was all he had whereas zuckerberg had an instagram and a facebook account which is what you'd expect that's incredible i'm really surprised about that that's 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 a good bit of knowledge you've dropped there yeah, I just can believe it. And I had forgotten Nick Clegg generally worked for them. So I mean, there you go. And the other thing, just to throw out, and we might talk about this in, in, in the main show, and we're just going to talk about Apple and privacy as well, is that they're so dependent on other people's apps. So when Apple made the change to app tracking, in Meta's case specifically, they immediately lost something like $10 billion of their market cap just because Apple stopped the app tracking. So they lost that sort of analytics for what advertisers and others were doing on their platforms. So you're 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 not by yourself when you're somebody like Meta. You're dependent on what Google play Google, Google do. You're dependent on what Apple do. You're dependent on web standards for what it is. So it, the, the, there's a whole lot of quite complex things that make a difference there. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting space to keep an eye on. I think. Yeah, I agree with you. It is. And forgive me, but I'm not going to shed a tear over Meta not doing particularly well. I don't think they're a particularly great company. But then. To be quite honest, I'm not sure any of our current generation of Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, any of them are, are coming out with any particular glory over any of this stuff. No, they're probably all doing things in their own bubbles that are interesting. I would imagine some of the stuff Meta are doing in some of their teams is really interesting. I, just, I think you, like me, don't enjoy how they package it up and monetize it. But I'd imagine if you're inside in one of the teams and you're working out how to detect somebody's eyes or or work out where their fingers are or whatever it may be, you know, super interesting stuff. But I just, I think it's how they package it all up. And it's probably the same for Amazon in, in a way that it's not always packaged as we would like or Apple for that matter. No, I think that's fair. And uh, you're, you're quite right. I mean, Meta, Facebook, as was, did quite a lot for p- the language PHP because they were so PHP dependent on, their, on the early days when they were feeding back into the PHP ecosystem. They were actually improving that language. So there's positive things in this as well. And I'm sure that there are friends that haven't seen each other in 30, 40, 50 years that managed to connect. Your f- and that little bit of joy it brought them. It, it, you know, it needs to be put in the balance of all the not very good things that they do as well. That, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to be sli- sort of slightly, slightly balanced about our argument here. But, you know, that there is a little bit of good on Facebook. No, I'd agree with what you said. I, I, don't, I don't doubt some of that. And I know my wife uses it and she enjoys it, but it's not for me. No, no. Anyway. I think that will probably do us for news. Like I say, we've got a bigger story we're going to talk about in the main part of the show, but I think we can move on to media. Let's do it. So just a little bit of follow-up. I say the same thing every week. I'm going to say it again. Star Wars Andor is phenomenal. Two performances in the last one, one from Andy Serkis, one from Stellan Skarsgård, were just off the charts. It was two of the greatest soliloquies I've seen in Star Wars. It still manages to make the Empire threatening. 
what living in that kind of sort of fascist state would be like and the sort of curbing of your freedoms. The quality of the performances is amazing. It's a truly worthy Star Wars show that I think stands on its own and has has raised the bar for everything. Kenobi was good. The Mandalorian was good. This is excellent. And almost with Taskmaster, if you've got any interest in the Star Wars universe, and possibly even if you haven't, if you like the film Rogue One, this is something you should go and watch. And there's still a couple of episodes to go. I'm just loving every second of it. I'm going to say the same thing I say every week, and I haven't watched any more of it. I've really struggled. Apologies. I do want to watch it. I genuinely do, because it does look fantastic. And I've enjoyed the first two episodes that I've watched. Fair enough. I have a little thing that I haven't had a chance to catch up with yet, but this is just a bit of information for something that's going to be on Disney+. Plus. It's not a very big thing, but if you've ever watched, if you've got children and you haven't shown them any of the Studio Ghibli movies, so Howl's Moving Castle, Laputa Castle in the Sky, My Neighbor Totoro, and, and others... They're the most beautiful hand-drawn things in the way that some of the early Disney stuff, such as Jungle Book and Snow White and things were. It's that sort of style. They've got a very unique style. It's not quite manga. It's almost there. Okay, I've never seen any of it. I've heard of Studio Ghibli, Ghibli, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Heard of it, never seen it, and I don't think my children have either. Well, I think they're all on Netflix in the UK, so run, don't walk, and, and show them some of that stuff. Some of it is more child, young child-friendly than others, but it, it's absolutely entrancing, and both my kids started well. I think the youngest was start, started at five and watched Lapis Castle in the Sky, which might have been a bit old for them, but was entranced, and every single thing I've shown them since then. So something like Ponyo, I'd say would be great for young kids. It's up there with Pixar at the best, for sure. So uh, maybe show some to your kids as an experiment, see if they'd like it. I think it's on Netflix. We should maybe double check that. Yeah, I'll go and have a look. But okay, recommendation. Yeah. Anyway, see what I can do. M- my story goes to Studio Ghibli and Lucasfilm are now working together and they've produced a little thing about if you've watched any of the Mandalorian stuff. Baby Yoda, Gro- it's called Discover Zen, Grogu and the Dust Bunnies and it's just a little animated thing that I'm going to get a chance to watch at some point and I'm sure it'll be lovely and enchanting because that's, uh, well, one's big corporate who do, are very good at this kind of thing and Studio Ghibli are awesome so I'm just looking forward to getting five minutes and watching that. That sounds good. Okay, I will try and do some homework this week. It's only short. Short is good for me. Good stuff. Um, okay, and then the last thing I just popped in was Top Gear. I've been watching Top Gear with my son, um, well, both sons, and it's just been great. Good bit of family TV. I like quite like it. Bit of traditional family TV. And it, it's, I don't know, it's good. It, it's a good formula, and it's nice to see it. And there's no swearing if you watch Top Gear rather than watching the Grand Tour. Fair enough. I've also been enjoying the series in the Top Gear. They do good stuff. The review of the Range Rover and last night's show was particularly good. I've seen the start of it. I haven't finished it, but the Range Rover did look amazing. Although it's a huge amount of money. All cars are, though. They've all gone up. They are, but um, you can spec a Range Rover up to over £200,000 now. For I'm not surprised by that because they talked about it a while ago because there's the Rolls-Royce at Cullinan, which is quarter of a million quid just to get you started. Um, I think it was about a year ago somebody was picking up the children from my son's school in one of those things and it looked ridiculous i mean my kids go to a normal state school and it just looked ridiculous because it was far bigger than anything else in the in the car park and it just it it really stood out if i'm honest because there aren't a lot of footballers around where i live so it just was a bizarre car to see in the in the children's car park fair enough anyway it's a good show it's worth watching they've 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 maintained a level of humor and irreverence that i approve of i've got definitely I've got another little recommendation, and this is one I sort of fell into by mistake. It's a documentary on Netflix. It's called High Score. Trailer, a link to the trailer in the show notes. And it's a little history of computer gaming. 
effectively. So it starts with Atari in the early days, it goes through a couple of genres, it goes through point-and-click adventures and sort of LucasArts and the King's Quest games and role-playing games and all that kind of stuff. It's very, very well done. There's not enough British stuff in it because it's largely sort of console and computer-focused. For example, the last episode goes to shooters and they speak to John Romero and Carmack from id when they came up with Doom and then Quake. It's it's really quite sweetly done. And the final one is a, 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 for 3D games for things like Pilot Wings and Star Fox and Nintendo 64, where they do get a couple of British developers in from Argonaut Software, if you remember them from back in the day. Well worth a watch. They're about 45 minutes to an hour each episode. Each episode is focused around something like Pac-Man or early arcade games and then onto role-playing games and things. It's just high quality, well put together. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Six episodes. Sounds good. I think I'd be interested in some of that. I, like you, I have an affinity for some classics. I think... You probably go back a little bit longer than I do, but I certainly remember Doom and Quake, and oh, that, that was a golden era for me. Yeah, it's nice them speaking about the development of it, and you know, for example, without giving much away, when they were talking about releasing Doom, he wrote the press release before they'd even started the game for how big it was going to be based on, on Castle Wolfenstein, and you think, putting that out there, it's going to have network code, it's going to do this, that, and the other thing, and they hadn't written any, any of it, they hadn't written a line of code for the way that it was going to be. I just think that's, that's an incredibly, forgive the word, ballsy thing to do. It's, it's kind of putting your mission statement out there, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, they had to do it, and they and they shipped it in that period of time. And it's just little stories about the coders and artists involved with a lot of these things. So it's sort of make, it's quite humanizing rather than just being purely about the technology. And I did love Wolfenstein. I played that a lot. It was a classic. So despite your veiled thing about me being much older than you, you do remember some of these classic things as well. Fair point. <laughs> Good. Uh, that kind of we, we can merge into the game section on that because I think that does both things. And I, to be quite honest, haven't had an awful lot of time to play any games unusually for me this week. So uh, the only things I was going to sort of talk about were A, the high score thing as we merge into games and that following up on a reporting a couple of weeks back about the Competitions and Mergers Authority in the United Kingdom, looking at the Microsoft Blizzard acquisition, now the EU have opened up their own one. European regulators have now given until March 2023 to make a decision Microsoft proposed 68.7 billion acquisition of acquisition uh, of Activision Blizzard. So that's interesting. They're not getting away with it, are they? No, they're not. I do wonder what an in-depth one looks like. And I've got a few questions. Why does it take them so long to open an in-depth one? What have they been doing? And I kind of feel for the people that are in Activision Blizzard because it's massively unsettling. Are we going to get bought? Oh yeah, we are. And then you go through this well, they probably already had 90 days and then another 90 days. And you're just sat in a limbo town where are we getting acquired? Are we not? What's the future look like for us? And I just think it's really bad. I've just gone through this where I work. And it is really upsetting to people when you're going through an acquisition. No matter which side of the, the party you're on, whether you're getting acquired or acquiring, they can be upset of integrating the two businesses. And I don't know. I just It annoys me that it takes so long for any of this to be reviewed and, and really gone into it. It just seems very glacial. I agree with you. It's difficult. I wonder if the process is, is, well, it'll be mired in legalities anyway, but the EU law takes a little bit of time to go through. They they just passed the act we talked about last week that's going to come into force. Maybe the players in this then fall under that, which they didn't in some way, shape, or reform before. And as it hadn't actually gone through yet, this may be a part in that. It may be they looked at the UK regulator and went, oh, hang on, they've got a point here. It's, we better actually speed up our, our investigation into this. So it's, it, I mean, it's a complicated market, isn't it? And it, it's 
well, leg legislation is always longer than business, isn't it? You know, the legislation is always catching up with what the businesses want to do, as witnessed by the force of forcing of USB-C connectors and all the rest of it. Hold on, ding, 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 ding. Still need to get a soundboard, a soundboard sorted out for that. So yeah, it, it is interesting that it's sort of widening regulation, and you just wonder, hang on, will US regulators be the next ones to wake up and suddenly pay attention to the fact that this maybe shouldn't have happened? What do you think about this? Though? Do you think this shouldn't have happened? What do you think this should have happened? To me, it shouldn't have happened. It's making Microsoft too dominant in, let's face it, Call of Duty et al. are amongst the biggest games on the planet and locking them potentially down under one one platform, no matter what Microsoft is. And it's not one platform, it's two, because it involves Windows PCs too. But Microsoft largely on that particular market too. I, I, I think it's putting too much power under one developer's roof. But what's to stop Microsoft coming up with the next Call of Duty today? Call it Call of Battlefield, for example. And they come up with that today and, you know, it goes gangbusters and it's amazing. But because they've written it in-house, it's part of them. They wouldn't get stopped to do it. Would they then get called to break up? I don't know. So part of me is, I, I can't argue this either way. Part of me is saying, well, does it really matter? They're buying a games company. They do games. They've got a gaming arm. It's going to make them too big. I don't know. But then they let Adobe buy Macromedia back in the day and they literally just ate the competition. And we haven't really talked about Figma, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit mixed on it, if I'm honest, because I think you could argue this either way of the good and the bad. But why why wouldn't they call Microsoft to let go of its gaming pass or Jets in its Xbox business? It's difficult, isn't it? I think in the sense that they're a pre-existing and they have a history of making it for all platforms, even the Wii, as you pointed out. So the fact that they have grown big off the ability to work across all platforms, and it is absolutely a decider when people are looking to buy their next gaming thing, is is it available on System X? And probably hurt things like the Wii U and hurts things like the Switch, that it's not available on there for, for them, but at least it has the potential to be. It's down to the developer to do so. If Microsoft developed it in-house then it is a competitive advantage for them but i think there is a subtle distinction between buying a smaller company before they become that sort of do dominant that is expected on every platform and that giving you that much and and you know they've tried little bits like this before let's face it call of duty had exclusives for the playstation you could get some skin or other or arrived a week before but it always came out on the other platform and you could see that pendulum swinging the other way so you know gears of war is a good example or halo which are only available on on xbox you can't get them on playstation but it, it, it's not, it wasn't predominant in the market. You know, Halo was small enough when Microsoft bought them that it, it wasn't a factor for PlayStation. So I think there is a subtle distinction between developing that kind of thing in-house or identifying them when they're really small before they've got market dominance and it being the reason people buy consoles. Yeah, I guess I'm still not convinced. <laughs> I could take the other side in the argument too, to be fair, but yeah, it's, it's a thought. I think I'm a little, I think I'm too much on the fence and probably need to look into it, but I think if we're saying Microsoft can't buy any more gaming studios, should we not be saying Microsoft you need to spin out your gaming business? They're only small though; they're only the third in the market. Oh, and your comment about Call of Duty may not be, able, you know, may not go on the Switch. I'm not sure the Switch is man enough for Call of Duty. A very clever developer could probably do something. If you look at some of the ports back in the day that they managed to do, then you, you'd have thought they could get something up and running. Let's face it: Apex Legends runs on the Switch at a very low frame rate. But it runs on the Switch, and I'm sure if they wanted to, and they, there was enough, they thought there was enough of a market there, they could. Nintendo allow all sorts of things on the platform now that they didn't before, because it transgressed their 
sex, violence, swearing, whatever it was that they felt the Nintendo platform was good for. And by the way, another thing that High Score documentary is good for is, is a little bit of a potted history of Nintendo and the way they developed some of their games and who was allowed in the platform. And the reason they do it like that is they watched what happened to Atari. Atari just shoveled out all sorts of stuff onto their consoles. So they devalued their market and people stopped buying them because it was just rubbish that was out there, crapware that was out there effectively. So Nintendo guarded their platform a lot more carefully so they wouldn't have the same thing up and coming. So, you know, the, the, let's face it, these gaming companies have been making these for 40, 50, 60 years in some, Nintendo's case because they started with cards, you know, back in the day. So, you know, they've, they've, they've got a lot of history by this point. Yeah, no, that's true. And yeah, you're right. It is interesting. I don't know. I'm still a bit mixed on the original story, if I'm honest. I can't. I can't decide either way. I just, I think in my mind, I just assumed it was a done deal. And so, so I'd close my mind to it. It is interesting though. And you you kind of need like global courts to pick up on this sort of thing, really. It's a bit of an odd one that, that we do it region by region still, because these are global businesses. Yeah, they are. They are. So again, just watch the space and see what happens with it, I guess. Do we have a bet? What would be our bet? A pound or something? I don't know. A pound, you're saying it will just go through and that'll be the end of it when we're here. And I'll bet a pound that, no, it's going to get holed up and they won't be allowed to be purchased by Microsoft. Yeah, let's do it. All right. You need to put it in the follow-up. So we check We check it every week to see what's happened. Because I'm sure we... need to check in every week. But yeah, probably... uh, no, no, no. Just between, just between ourselves. And, you know, unless some kind listener wants to write in and tell us when it happens, we'll forget. So uh, we, need, we, need a, we do need a little note somewhere. Okay. Good. Next story is yours. Oh, uh, yeah. So... My son wants FIFA 23 for his birthday. And I thought, okay, that's not a problem. I'll get that for him. So I was going to buy it because it was on sale on the eShop. But how can I buy it and hide it from him? That was the question. I couldn't find a good answer for it. And I thought, I'll go and look on Amazon. I wonder if you can buy like a download code that you could redeem. You know, because I wonder if you wanted to gift it to somebody, like if my parents wanted to buy my son a, a, you know, a game for his birthday. I couldn't seem to find any way of gifting the game or getting a download code. It just seemed like I can buy it and stick it straight in my account. But I don't want to do that before his birthday. It will be because we've only got a digital console. So it's fine that it will be digital after his birthday. But I don't want to see that. He, I don't want him to see it that I bought it before his birthday. But I obviously do want to buy it while it's on sale. I don't want to pay £20 more because it's not on sale the night of his birthday. So I just found it a bit odd on the PlayStation. There didn't seem a mechanism to do it. Why can't I get download codes like on Amazon or something? I, I don't know. I just found it a bit odd. I don't know if you have thoughts. I don't really. I didn't buy the digital console. I bought the one with the drive because I didn't have any other way of playing my old Blu-rays. So I deliberately bought the one with the, you know, with with a player. Still, not that I've got many Blu-rays, but I still wanted the ability to play the odd one. There are very little Blu-rays in our house, if in fact none. We don't really have any media, so so that wasn't a big issue. Also, I didn't know if I was going to how much I was going to use my PlayStation. I ordered it a bit on the whim. In hindsight, should have got the one with the disc. In hindsight, but hey ho. But I want to buy him a gift. I want to pay the best price for it, obviously. But I don't want to know I bought it and I've got, I don't know, three weeks to his birthday. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't understand why this can't be done. Uh, to be honest, this I'm sure, going to show a bit of my ignorance here. I didn't actually know you... I know you could buy keys for games on Amazon. I presume they sent you the, an empty box with like a, a, a key code in it that you opened up and they go, oh, there's my six or 70 quid game and type in the code that came in the box. Do they send you a code or something? They don't seem to have any of that. If you go on there and type in FIFA Digital, you can buy two gift tokens that are to the value of buying it online. And it's just like, well, that's a bit pointless. So you can spend £70 on Amazon and get a £15 or £20 gift card, and then you get the card sent to you, and then you type them in when you 
in, in your console and then go and buy the game because you've got credit. No, it just didn't seem a nice way of doing it because it will be in my account anyway. I'll buy it. We, we kind of share the PlayStation. And normally when I'm buying a game for myself, it's fine. I'll buy it. I want it straight away. But in this scenario where I want it to be more of a timed release, I was, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do with it. So there you go. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a puzzler, that isn't it? Or you could, like you say, talk about the sale. Is this a fact that Sony just controls the distribution and the store effectively to the game, so they're not allowing Amazon to sell keys for for the various games on there? Is it as simple as that? I would have thought so for that side of gifting it, but then equally, how do I? I kind of want to gift it on in the app, but you know, in the old days, like in iTunes, you could gift somebody something. I kind of want to do that. I wonder if they've stopped doing the codes things so that people don't do counterfeiting and all of that, which I, I can kind of see. So I, I don't know. I'm, a bit, I'm just a bit cheesed off with it because I, I was going to buy it, put it in my library, but I couldn't find any way of hiding it. You, you kind of like want, want a way of like you could hide a photo in your photos album. Could I hide the game until, until his birthday and then it's fine? Yeah, it's a bit rubbish. I mean, I guess all you can really do is buy it the night before and say, look on the PlayStation. I may or may not did that last Christmas because they had a sale on, on Christmas Eve and I'd left the purchase so late in the day and I made him a voucher for the game because um, it was last minute. And, but it was great because I could preload it so the morning he came down, there it was. That's very nice. But I was lucky it went on sale the night before. Yeah, so I mean, I'm waiting for Black Friday to come. And what they do do now, and I think there's lots of apps, they tell you how long it's going to be on sale for. They do this on Nintendo and on PlayStation, so you know how long the sale is running for. If you buy the game on the PlayStation, and you don't have to download it straight away, you'd have to go hunting around in the library to know that it was there. Is he likely to do that? Possibly. I mean, he fiddles around on the, on the PlayStation all the time. He loves that PlayStation. It's more or less his. I'm just thinking that could be an option. You could buy it and not download it immediately that's what i was thinking yeah it's still a bit rubbish though you should be able to get i mean steam lets you gift games to other people you can expressly go here's an email address or a friend i've got on the, on the service right click gift game to this person done and they can accept it or deny it so you don't need to spend the money which is quite nice as well but you can do that whenever you want so that's kind of the way these electronic things should work yeah and i kind of want to gift it to myself with a discounted rate but just redeem it when i'm ready fair enough Anyway, there you go. Should we move on to the main show? Moving on to the main show, and uh, it, this will be a short main show, I think. But So this is a story that's come out, well, it's broken today, really. So this is the 14th of November, as we record, obviously. It's called App Anal- Apple Analytics Data Sent from iPhone's With or Without Consent Class Action Lawsuit Filed. And it's a long way of saying that a particular security researcher has discovered that even if you opt out of sharing data with Apple... It's still recording everything that's going on within Apple's apps and presumably other developers' apps to the level of swipes, you know, with how long you spend on an app, how long you open up a picture for, all that kind of stuff within it for every app that Apple have. And there's a little bit of this we've talked about before where data was being leaked outside of VPN apps back to Apple. So if you had a VPN active, all the data should go on that. We talked about this in the previous show. But even when you do that, some of the data is returning to Apple. So uh, without consent, they're taking some data off your phone. Yeah, so I've read this article through. So when you get a new iPhone or sometimes when you saw an update, it prompts you, do you consent to share analytics with Apple? And then they do a second one, do you want to share any analytics with developers? I normally opt into this because I think, yeah, why not? I've got nothing really to hide. But the sheer quantum of what they're sending back is more alarming. So I think there's two things here. There's one, even if you just said, no, don't share my data with Apple, it was still sending it. And then two, the sheer amount of data they're sending back to their own servers to map what you're doing 
does not seem to bode well for a company that prides itself on privacy. So I guess the first one's a bug. You've said, no, I don't want to share it, but it's doing it anyway. Is that a legitimate bug or is that one that they just left? So I don't know the answer to that question. And again, how did that bug get through? And do they not have anything to check it? Oh, look, this person's sent us back all this data. Have we got the yes, no against their flag on the database? It didn't really go into what they're doing with anonymizing any of the data. I'd be curious to know what they're doing there. Because I can imagine the data is really interesting, but you probably don't want to know who the data is coming from if you're Apple. And then, yeah, the sheer quantum of data, that's the final bit that really shocked me because it sounded like it was literally sending back everything. I you know, I tapped on the home icon. I then went to my profile and tapped update all apps. And then I tapped on Outlook. And then I went to Zoom. And just everywhere where I went within the app, literally every action. And how is that not slowing down the app? It, well, it's just logging, presumably. You know, just it doesn't take long to write one line to a text file, right? One line to a text file for everything you do. And just to sort of expand on what you're saying, and this is from a Gizmodo article it's linked to in our second link from the Pluralistic blog, which is Cory Doctorow's blog, who ex of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It doesn't stop there. The app sent details about you and your device as well, including ID numbers, what kind of phone you're using, your screen resolution, your keyboard languages, how you connect to the internet, notably the kind of information commonly used for device fingerprinting. I mean, Apple... We, I think most of us with devices assume Apple know most of that stuff about us anyway, but you take that and you add it to what's coming. And they had to jailbreak the device to, to see this, the security researcher. But it's a huge amount of data. As you've said, it's a vast amount of data being harvested. When you've explicitly opted out, I mean, presumably as the manufacturer, they may have reasons and you may have opted into sharing it, but it's when you've opted out, it becomes a serious problem to me. Uh, no, I think both are problematic. So I think you've, you've opted out. They shouldn't do it at all. Completely agree. That is wrong. That is a bad bug. But why do they need so much data about us of what we're clicking in the App Store? Is it that important? They barely change the App Store. So are they doing anything with that data or are they just harvesting it because they can? So I'd love to know more on the inside. What are you actually doing with it? Because it feels invasive what you're doing. And if you're doing it in the App Store, what other apps are you doing it in? You're logging all this in Safari, every website I go to. Are you doing what Facebook used to do and logging everything about somebody so you know more about them than what you're doing? I mean, they've got, what, a billion iOS devices out in the wild? The sheer quantum of data they could harvest is probably quite upsetting. Yeah, exactly. And you, you, you touched on this at the start. Their distinctive feature that they're selling themselves on now is that we're private, padlock over the Apple, all that kind of stuff, that we're the secure device. And the fact that they're using it it seems that they're using it within their own apps to harvest all the stuff. The very reason, as you've said, that they kicked Facebook out off with the app tracking stuff that they've done. I, 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 it's it's unconscionable, really. It's, it really is. Yeah, this is, and it kind of goes back to the ads thing we were talking about the other week. This is kind of where two sides of Apple are bumping into each other a bit. You've got the privacy-focused piece, which... Every, which they've really hung their, you know, hung their flag on it, or whatever you call it, because we've all got behind them as being the privacy company, and then they've slowly started eroding some of that. I think with some of these latest actions, because I don't think this adheres to it at all. Why do you need that much data? What are you going to do with it? I don't know. It just seems very bizarre to me. But they lock in every reminder I put in. How often I use the app? Or what the text is? Notes? You know, how much data do we have? Because People often say, you know, your phone knows more about you than you do. And so if Apple then have all this collective data, 
I think they need to do something on this. They at least need to come back and explain themselves. Very much. I mean, I, there's, there's a, a particular paragraph in this sort of link to article that sort of really stands out to me. Apple and Google are like the pigs and the men at the end of Animal Farm, supposed bitter enemies who turn out to be indistinguishable from one another. Google also has privacy switches in its preference panels that do nothing. That's an incredible statement to have to write, but I can see where he's coming from with that. If this, if this is actually what's happening, it's exactly what Google do. It's exactly what Meta do. It's exactly what Amazon do, tracking every single thing that you do on the device for whatever market reason. Yeah, you've got two opposing companies here that pride themselves on different values, but yeah, actually are the same thing underneath. Yeah, I can see that analogy. And the worst thing about all this is, again, you know, there's some, there's some proof to be done here. We, we, I don't want to prejudge the company. I think we, you, you're right. We need to let it wash out a little bit. There is no alternative. <laughs> you know, we all use a Google device. We all use an Apple device. There are things like Fairphone and there are the other things out there. But fundamentally, at some point, you're going to have to roll up and pay for your parking or whatever it is. And the only way in some places you can do that is download something from the Play Store or download something from the App Store. I guess you could put coins in it, old-fashioned. But even that's becoming more and more difficult. It's 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 a deeply concerning situation, and both of them have walled gardens. At what point does it not is it end being a walled garden and become a walled prison? You know. No, I think you're right, and obviously we've seen a bit with Apple more recently. Right, a they've been trying to slacken off a little bit some of their rules in their walled gardens. They've removed a few bricks, but. We've also seen the bricks get too high, the walls get too tall. So we are walking a really tricky line, I think. And this one's been quite an eye-opener because you wouldn't expect these behaviours of Apple. It's really disappointing and a bit frustrating because we keep telling people, get an Apple device, it's safe, it's secure. I'm not feeling too happy about this. If I did go and turn off the set to share my data, they're probably taking it anyway. But they're going to need to address that bug because surely this researcher is going to look into it in the future and see if a point update has fixed it. They, they need to comfort us that there's no truth in this at all, or if it was doing it, it was by mistake. And, you know, they've been caught out before with things like HomePods recording everything that you said and it being sent back to contractors. So it's not the first time, and it may be that there's a good software reason for it. I think they're going to struggle to justify that a little bit, to be quite honest at the moment. And then you take these two stories and you combine it with a third story in The Guardian about Apple limiting airdrop in phones in China which they just did in the last update, whereas it automatically switches off in 10 minutes, whereas it was a thing you could do before, where the protesters were using AirDrop to share locations of meets and all the rest of it. And they've done that entirely to satisfy a government. And that, considering the other things they've bent over backwards with to do in China in terms of running separate iCloud servers and doing all this kind of stuff, it's painting a pretty bleak picture of the company, I've got to say. No, I'd agree with you there. What got me on, on the one about AirDrop, so AirDrop's got three settings. It's either off, it's to contacts that are in your address book, or it's to everyone. And what happened in China, I don't know if we spoke about this, but basically somebody used it to everybody to do a broadcast, basically. And I think somebody did it on an airplane recently, if I remember correctly. So, so you can do that. And what they've done now is if you turn on the everyone set and it just stays on for 10 minutes, if that's good enough for China, why wouldn't you do that everywhere? Surely that's the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, you could see it being problematic that they need to keep switching it on, you know, if you're trying to use it as protest. And I suspect Iran would have been the same, although it's probably more Android devices in Iran. And there are apps that get around this, but if, you're, if you've got your thought, something like the Great Firewall of China that stops these things happening, then you just stop them downloading the app. So all the various Bluetooth apps that let you communicate in that way, shape, manner, or form, they can, they can stop that happening. So this again leads to the argument for more open devices and more open platforms and the Play Store being accessible on the iPhone and the App Store, be, uh, you know, the App Store being available on, on Android devices or something like it. 
just to to level the playing field a little bit more for for us and for those who live behind in the slightly more well in in, in more less repre- less open regimes for in the world. I was going to say more regulated mm. environments, but no, I understand what you're saying. So, I, yeah, but if they've made the change in China, and it seems like a really pragmatic way of doing it, which is if you pick everybody, you can have it on for ten minutes. Why wouldn't you do that to the entire world? And just go, look, you now have to do this. If you want it to be persistent, you just need to put the person in your contacts. I'm sure they probably will. Uh, but they should have done it. You spend the time to engineer it for one place. And that's the bit I think that's more frustrating is why are they doing special things for one country? Because they make the devices that they come on and they'd be lost without the labor and the and the, and the ability to turn things around quite quickly. And this is why you see this move to them to trying to do more in India and other countries where they can get the phones produced in this way. So they're kind of ruled by the regimes under which the devices are built. They need to, you know, that particularly in China who have this way. And, you know, uh, it, it, it it's very difficult. I think all of this is building up to put Apple in a position that they need to come out and make some statements and actually speak with and do some actions about this kind of thing, about all the privacy we've been talking about, about the app store, about developers. The the, the cards are sort of weighing up against them. And it's I, I find it, like you, I find it quite upsetting. I love the devices. You know, I, I've sworn by them for years and years and years. And I've held the companies to other people at a standard where I'm like, no, you can trust them with your data. You can do this kind of stuff. They are more secure. They do think about this. They are less likely to get viruses. Not impossible, but less likely for all sorts of reasons. They're reliable. I've used them day in and day out for business and for all the things that I've done for a very long time. And I, I, genuinely, I, I am quite upset by reading this kind of thing. So I want some sort of response from the company about what all this means and how far it goes and and what the reasons for are. Do you think they will respond? No, I don't. I think they'll be legislated against and made to change. Yeah, I think I'm I'm with you on this. I think that's what's going to happen. And it is frustrating. It is frustrating. And on that, well, I mean, I, there's not a lot we can say. I think we're just going to have to wait and see. It's not like I'm just going to stop using Apple devices now, I think. But I, I, I still want answers. And genuinely, every t- the next time something comes along that may be more Linux-based, and I think, well, I'll consider it a lot more seriously than I would have done in the past. The quality level of the chips and everything that we use now, that we continually, every week on this show, we say this is a really great development, it's a much faster chip, it's got much better battery. How much are we paying for that, really, with, with what else is going on? Yeah, and that's fine. And which article was it I read today, was if you're not the, if, if you're not paying for the product, you, you're paying for it, you, you know, with you. You and your data, and Apple are going that way. They charge a premium for the product, and they're taking your data at the same time. They're caking it and eating it, aren't they? <laughs> Quite. I do think the pluralistic article is very good, so I would recommend anybody read that. It's worth a read. It'll make you think, if nothing else. And nobody can accuse us of being Apple shills. I think when we're trying to sort of hold the company to some sort of account for for these kinds of practices, really. I think the bit where it says Apple are doing digital fingerprinting is unsettling. Why do they need all this detail about me? Very, very curious. Yeah, and I, you know, I we, we're in this space. I will be listening to other people's podcasts with interest over the next week or two, week or two, and, and trying to get a bit more so. The, the, you would you would have thought any other company would respond in some way to these kinds of things. Say, oh, hang on, we've been misrepresented, or this is a bug in the code, or, or something that's going on. But Apple's typical silence to something like this, I don't think will serve. But I, I agree with you. I don't think we'll hear anything. Yeah, I don't think we will, unless there unless there's more damning evidence than they're forced to. 
Yeah, on that slightly disappointing topic, I think we'll, we'll end the main show there. Have you got a recommendation for any apps this week for the iPad? No, I have not. I don't really change my apps very often. So I often find my, my groove and stick with them. I was just looking at my, my dock as you were talking about it. And I thought, well, I've got all the Office apps on there, my iPad. I've got messages, obviously. I've got Safari. I do have the Financial Times. I, you were talking about you use the Guardian. I do use the Financial Times app. The app I must say is a little disappointing, but the website is fantastic. The app's just disappointing because it doesn't feel terribly modern, if I'm honest, but it does download the newspaper. So when I was on the tube the other week, it downloads all the latest articles so you can read it whilst you're on the tube, which is probably the, the best feature. So I'm going to leave it with just the FT app on your mobile is reasonable. On the iPad, a bit disappointing. You might as well use the website. I'll have to scramble now for to put that in the show notes. And I've changed my app of the week while we were talking because of something you said earlier. So I'll talk about the app I was going to recommend this week, next week. And this week I'm going to recommend NetNewsWire, which is an RSS reader for iPads, iPhones, and the Mac. You can get it to sync you all across all those things, making use of iCloud. You can bang in any RSS feed, or you can just put in a website and it will do its best to try and find an RSS feed for you. It will sync across them. So if you have got multiple devices and you set it up properly and you start reading it on one iPad and you move to your phone, articles you've read will be marked as read there. Being as you said, you'd set up a web service to do this. I thought I'd open, uh, I'd offer a, a a free alternative that works really well on an iPad uh, for you. I, I've been really impressed. I've been a NetNewsWire user for years. It was taken paid for a little bit of time, uh, but they've made it. It's not open source again, but it is free and you can tip the developer. Uh, if you could, it's quite an interesting story, actually. It started out as a free app. Uh, he sold it off to Flying Meat Software, I think was the name of the company that bought it. And then uh, they sold it back to him or gave it back to him at some point when RSS readers went the way of the walrus, when Google Reader kind of went. And he it was reborn for macOS and uh, iOS at that point. So you can get it on the App Store. It works really well. It's just, it's a really good app, solid. Yeah, I used to use it back in the day, I must confess. I think it's very good. The reason I went for a web service is so I've just signed up for Feedly, which was a free account, because I I kind of want it in a web browser on my iPad, but I will be interested to see whether I can link NetNewsWires to Feedly or whether I have to use Feedly's app. I don't know the answer to that question. I think you can link to Feedly within it, or you can maintain your own list, as I do, by syncing between them, and it's easy enough to add other things into it. So maybe try both, see if you can sync Feedly into it. But no, it, it works well for me. And their little widget on, on iOS particularly is great that you can have it on one of your screens. So uh, yeah, NetNewsWire is my recommendation. I think it's good one, very topical for anybody looking to get their news not on Twitter. Yeah, and real-time follow-up, Feedly is one of the options in NetNewsWire that you can incorporate, including BazQuux, whatever that is, Feedbin, Feedly, Inno Reader, Newsblur, and the Old Reader are all available as sources for you. Okay, I'll take a look. Check it out. I think we can call that a show, Chris. Yeah, I think so. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Chris. And if you want to get in touch with us at all, we're still on Twitter at at, at WFS underscore podcast. And you can always email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. If any of this discussion has made you think or enraged at Apple or you want to defend them in some way, shame, or form, drop us a line. Thanks, Rod. Have a good evening. Talk to you next week. Cheers. Bye.